our immigration laws are rooted in racism. So if you actually go back and look to the development of what is considered the now Immigration Nationality Act, our first immigration law was called the Chinese Exclusion Act. Yeah. That was basically developed to um, exclude Chinese nationals. How much more explicit can you exactly? (laughs) Tell us how you really feel. But I would even argue that our earliest immigration laws actually date back to the slave trade, Mm -hmm. right? Because that was forced migration for the purposes of labor. And our immigration laws are really there. If when I when I teach class, it's like three (laughs) buckets. It's supposedly for family unity, which takes forever and a day to do. Right. Right. But the easiest way to immigrate to the United States is actually for the promotion of capitalism. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's getting certain employment visas, work visas. That's the you can even fast track them. And that's mostly accessible to who, you know, mostly rich white people, Mm -hmm. right? And then last is the bucket of humanitarian forms of relief, which are the hardest ones to get, Mm -hmm. right? So I think it's really important for us to acknowledge as Americans, right, that our immigration laws are rooted in xenophobia. Welcome to another episode of Stranger Food, y'all. I am Donovan, and we are so happy that you are here to listen to our conversation on immigration. If you don't already know, Stranger Fruit is a video podcast that focuses on the black and brown perspectives on topics like politics, race, pop culture, media, music, and so much more. You can find us on YouTube to see the full episode in all its technicolor glory or listen to us on all podcasting platforms. You already got a tiny taste of today's episode topic where we ask our panelists, are immigrants under attack? Que lo que hay, mi gente. I'm Constanza Eliana, and this is an episode near and dear to my heart. Yo soy Boricua, and although I was born in New York, I was raised in Borinquen, or better known by its colonial name of Puerto Rico. When my family decided to move to the States, it really was because of the island's economy. It was in heavy decline, and the island was already experiencing a mass exodus to the states and really across the world since the 1950s. So my experience in the states was very much that of an immigrant. And these days, immigrants are under heavy attack by the far right and conservative political party in Congress. It's like, who are these fools attacking these days, right? I am a first-generation Jamaican-American, and just like you said about Puerto Rico, many Jamaicans leave for better opportunities, often due to Western meddling to keep black and brown countries around as cash cows instead of thriving independent empires. And recently, seeing Haitians, who have been through a lot, being rounded up at the border was painful to see. I couldn't help but to think of my family or my friends as I saw those images. So given both of our personal connections to this topic, we felt it was important to highlight the immigrant experience directly from immigrants themselves, the people who are the most affected by these racist and xenophobic policies directly, and have an honest conversation about the challenges, the joys, and really everything in between. In this episode, Ileana is joined by a diverse group of voices to share their experiences around immigration. We hope you enjoy this conversation as much as we did. Long before 2016 and MAGA, xenophobia was not new to the U.S. system and social lexicon. The U.S. built the Mexico border wall in the 1940s, and since then, anti-Latino and anti-Black policies 
have only gotten stricter and harsher. This episode explores the immigrant experience and policies with immigrants and children of immigrants themselves. I am so happy to be doing this episode with y'all. Thank you so much for being here, my beautiful panelists today. Welcome to Stranger Fruit, everybody. This episode, we are diving deep into the immigrant experience. So today, the panelists are joining me with Stuart Walukaga, Ugandan Clinical Research Coordinator and the host of Success, Peace, and Hope podcast. Thank you for having me. Yes, thank you for being here. We also have Marisa Montes, Associate Clinical Law Professor and Director of Loyola Law School's Immigrant Justice Clinic. Hi, everyone. I'm excited to be here. Yes, thank you. Um, we also have Yancy Martinez, LA Native, social worker and community advocate. Hello, everybody. So happy to be here. Thank you. And Elizabeth Rodriguez, immigrant rights activist and DACA recipient. Hi. <laughs> Just like everyone, I'm also like super excited to be here. Yes, me too. So this is actually an episode that we have wanted to do for a little while. When it comes to like immigration, documentation, things like that, it can be really, really personal. So we wanted to make sure that we could do this episode a lot of justice, but also make it as diverse as possible. I think in the U.S. in particular, so many people have the misconception that illegals or immigrants or whatever aliens, whatever terminology they have learned to use based on whatever biases they have, that it only applies to people from South America. And I think a lot of that has to do with the media. But there's so many different types of countries, so many, you know, worldwide that um, immigrants really come from all over. So we wanted to bring in as much diversity as we could. We are filming this episode in Los Angeles today. So, you know, Los Angeles is really a hub for so many different types of immigrants, so much so much diversity even in the immigrant experience too. Marisa, you are a lawyer and you have definitely given me so much to think about when it comes to the immigrant experience and in particular the types of people that you work with. Can you give us a little bit of a background on specifically the work that you do, but also the types of experiences that you're hearing from the people that you are serving about what their actual experience is? Yeah, I'm happy to do so. So just to tell you a little bit about what I do, I'm a professor at Loyola Law School and I direct our Immigrant Justice Clinic. It's kind of the best of both worlds because I get to work with law students, most of which are first generation students of color, and then we still get to represent individuals, people who are seeking humanitarian forms of relief. And we work in partnership with Dolores Mission Parish, which is located in Boyle Heights, kind of known as like the activist church of L.A. Um, and plus, it's in Boyle Heights. The fact that Boyle Heights is also considered the West, I mean, the Ellis Island of the West Coast. And then we also work with Homeboy Industries. So I represent a lot of people who have had criminal convictions or who have been gang involved. All the work that we do is humanitarian focus. So asylum seekers, unaccompanied children, victims of trafficking, victims of crime, and so on. Part of our clinical work, we've gone into Mexico working with migrants in transit, working with DACA recipients. And the immigrant experience is very, very vast, right? We've had the opportunity to work with Ukrainians who come from very privileged backgrounds, but unfortunately, because of the current situation in Ukraine, between Ukraine and Russia, they've been forced to immigrate to the United States and are vulnerable despite their privileges because they lack legal status, right? And specifically, just this past semester, we represented a family that was trafficked, 
upon entering the United States. Mm -hmm. But then we also represent individuals who may have come here as children, right, and have suffered hardship and turned to gang violence or gang membership as a means of protection. And now because unfortunately, because of choices they've made in their life are facing removal proceedings, right? Mm -hmm. Or individuals who are currently fleeing situations in Latin America due to either violence, political unrest, or even environmental change. These are all driving factors that are causing people to immigrate to the United States, right? One thing about immigration that I love is that it definitely makes the world real, right? Like you get to meet people from all over the world um, and you get to see them in all sorts of situations. And particularly the population we serve is in fact highly vulnerable. And we see them not just suffering vulnerabilities in transit, but also then vulnerabilities when they're here in the United States. Mm -hmm. And you actually introduced me to something that I think I kind of knew was happening, but didn't really realize how severe it was, is labor trafficking. This is something that now the media is starting to cover and very few media outlets at that. It's like Vox or Vice doing deep dives on it. Can you tell us a little bit about what that looks like? Because not only are people immigrating here to work and to find better opportunities, but then they're being trafficked over it. Yes, So correct. what does that look like? And this is something that I always bring up, especially when we go abroad to do work with migrants in transit, because a lot of them are coming here seeking asylum. And unfortunately, our asylum laws are horrible, right? The majority of people who seek asylum in the United States will be denied. Mm -hmm. um, but then what happens is once they enter, again, because of their vulnerability, lack of legal status, they are then re-victimized in the United States. Mm -hmm. And something that happens very often, and most of the time a lot of you know migrant populations don't realize, is the fact that they're being trafficked, right? Mm -hmm. I think part of it is because once when we think in you know common knowledge, when you think of trafficking, it's sex trafficking, right? Mm -hmm. But the most common form of trafficking, even here in the United States, is labor trafficking, right? Mm -hmm. So when we do these client interviews, you know, my students now know as well to ask people like, well, tell me about your labor conditions, right? Mm -hmm. And many of them will tell you like, well, you know, I worked at this place, they took away my legal documents, they threatened to deport me, and they failed to pay me. But I'm undocumented. So like, that's what's going to happen to me here in the States, right? Without actually realizing that they're being trafficked. Another situation that's quite common, and I'll use a client example, I represented a man from El Salvador who came to the United States fleeing basically persecution based on his political opinion. And then when he got here, he told me like, well, my mom kicked me out of my house, of her house because I decided I wouldn't work for her anymore. Mm. And then I was like, well, what happened? And he said, well, my mom paid my coyote, right? And she, when she crossed me over, she said I had to pay her back. And so she got all these jobs for me, made him do a bunch of domestic work as well, and handed in, he would hand over the paycheck, right? But then that debt would continue to accumulate because it's like, now you owe me rent, you owe me for bills and so on. And that's considered debt bondage. And that's actually something that happens quite often. And because they feel some sort of, obviously, well, allegiance to their trafficker, most people are trafficked by family members and friends. Again, they don't realize they're in fact being trafficked. Wow. Mm -hmm. Because like th there are people you trust. Yes. There are people you're putting pretty much handing your life over to because they're the only people you know. Yeah. In this new space, in this new country. And yet they're the first ones to take advantage of you. Yeah, exactly. That's awful. And yeah, and just, you know, most of us think, and I always bring this up to you because since I represent gang members, right? People think like, oh, when people are trafficked, they're trafficked by the mafia or narcos or gang members. The majority of people are trafficked by the people that they know, right? Yeah. So loved ones or friends. Yeah. 
wow. people in the communities. Mm-hmm. Right? That yeah. They know from their hometowns that they grew exactly. up with. And, exactly. Right. And there's that trust, too. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. And that the fact that they come here and they know, they're not aware of their rights, Absolutely. you know? And the person who brought them over is telling them all of this and that this is how they can stay in the United States. So they believe them. So that brings us to, again, this knowledge that people who migrate from their homes aren't necessarily doing it because, oh, it's just a fun little thing to do, right? They're doing it for a reason. (laughs) A lot of times, like you mentioned, it's about safety, but it's also about finances, right? Like you want better opportunities. Perhaps you're living in poverty and you think moving somewhere else is going to provide you, but most of the time your children a better opportunity, better education, whatever it might be. I often talk about this even with my own experience moving to the United States. My parents are uh, are from Puerto Rico. So the immigration experience is very different for us because we have citizenship. There's so many reasons for that. We're not going to go there, but... <laughs> not today. Yes, yes. Not today. <laughs> this is not the episode for it. Um, but there, I very much have the immigrant experience. I realized that their reasoning for moving to the United States didn't just have to do with citizenship. It mostly had to do with opportunities. They wanted to go to school. They didn't feel like our home country was able to provide them the type of opportunities that they could get if they were here. And that is pretty much what most immigrants or children of immigrants will hear, right? Like, we want you to have a better life. We want you to have a better opportunity. Stuart, I want to ask you, because you're coming from Uganda, you have a student visa, and you told me a lot prior to today's episode about your personal experience with the job process. And I think sometimes people don't realize, in particular, citizens who have never even had to think about the process of job search outside of their own experience. You told me that there's a lot of challenges that come up with that. Mm -hmm. Tell me a little bit about what you've had to go through in the employment process as you are seeking better opportunities for yourself. So yeah, I came two years ago from Uganda and I came to do a master's degree. And everyone who says like, oh, you have a master's degree. Life should be easy, right? Like Mm. it's a master's degree. You should be able to find a job. And most of my classmates would like say, oh yeah, it should be easy. It's public health. Everyone at this time, they're looking for public health of people. And so, but um, I started applying for these jobs in May during my uh, spring semester. And I applied for over 300 jobs. And... Everyone, like, they would say, you have the experience. Like, I do have experience. I have all the necessary requirements to be able to be employed. But the only thing is that, okay, then you have to fill out the form and they tell you, okay, you have the experience and you do the first interview. And then when they ask, do you have to get uh, sponsorship from the the company? And then if you say yes, then they say, oh, yeah, we're a small company. You have to only apply to the big companies, but then also the big companies like also don't want to take you some time because then it it's cheaper for them to do something else. Mm-hmm. The higher yeah, yeah, like citizenship, yes, yeah. yeah. And so at the end of the day, you keep on like going through and you put in a lot of money to come to the U.S. Right. and you leave your family. You're looking for a better place and like, but then you get here and like 
other than like going through the sub-zero environment that I was in in Minnesota, mm-hmm. um, you also have to endure the trying to find a job. And then you, once you get the job, then the laws are like still not clear on what you are supposed to do. Right. And so you keep on going through these circles of now I have a job. Now I have what am I going to do? How am I going to like fulfill all these requirements for the like for the the paperwork that is required? Right. So yeah, and so I ended up getting just like one job that gave me to come to LA. Yeah. And that was, you know, after eight months of like applying yeah, applications. the application process. Wow. And, yeah, and then you have to take something that is below your training Mm -hmm. because that's the only way you could go through because if you try applying for higher up jobs then nobody's going to take you because then they don't know if you're good enough and so you have to go below and then you get your foot in the door wow and you told me also that there's a lot of racialized experience in that process too so not only are you thinking about like visa stuff Mm -hmm. and if i'm gonna get a job but then once you get a job and once you move into a place, you um, mentioned you were first in Minnesota, now you're in Los Angeles, then there's also the racialized component. And one of the things that I noticed when I was doing the preliminary interviews for today's show um, is that there's definitely a racial divide even within the immigrant experience. And I know we've all kind of talked about it in one way, shape or form before, you know, kind of getting on camera today. but. There's definitely anti-Blackness in the immigrant experience. Stuart, you were telling me a little bit about some of the comments that people make to you, some of the, you know, ignorance that comes even just around your Africanness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, how does that make you feel? Like you're you're already thinking about so much as an immigrant. You're really trying hard to keep that that visa, whether it's a student visa or worker's visa. But then you also have to think about this experience of how people are going to treat me in this country, in my job, at the grocery store. What is that? How does that feel? Um, like when I first came, like I thought like, you know, it's the U.S. Everything should be fine. Technically, right? <laughs> and like you don't think about like, like when you're in Uganda, they tell you like there's racial problems in the U.S., but you don't have an idea of what it really means. Mm-hmm. So you think like, okay, like, you know, we have tribes in Uganda and like people do all these things. So, but when you come here and then you start hearing comments of like, okay, uh, you say, my name is Stuart. And then they say, oh, we've had your accent. Where are you from? I'm like, oh, I'm from Minnesota. Mm-hmm. And then they're like, okay, uh, where in Minnesota? And then like, okay, uh, Minitanka, and then, like, okay, so where in Minitanka, like, where are you from, from, from? I'm like, those are five from. Right. You know? <laughs> like, you know, like, and then you're like, okay, I am from Uganda. Oh, okay. Um, we don't know where Uganda is, but um, oh, is it Africa? It's, there's, like, that country called Africa. Oh, and I'm man. like, okay, there's no country called Africa. <laughs> Africa is a continent, and I told you just that I'm from Uganda. So mm-hmm. there's a difference between Africa and Uganda because this. And so you you get these comments from people. Now I've started like embracing it because, you know, when you go to a job and now you know that 
it's part of the like it's part of the job so it no longer makes me feel sad as it used to make me feel mm-hmm. now i've started like embracing it knowing that okay this is ignorance of the highest order mm-hmm. but it's like i don't know like people are not like in uganda we are forced to learn about other countries we are forced to learn what the us is we learn about the canadian prairies we learn about all this history of world history but here it's not a requirement right like people now t- trying to remove it from even the studying about different things mm-hmm. so people now people barely know their us states here yes. yeah. so <laughs> it's <laughs> yeah it's not on the same page yeah so yeah so now i'm like okay i will educate you so i have a map and i show them like i come from here and this is the horn of africa and i'm in east africa just and then they like and it turns into a whole thing yeah and then like okay so do you guys wear shoes like, oh man oh, no. yeah i'm like okay we don't we yeah exactly like, <laughs> we just like move on like a lot of us definitely have the experience of like the where are you really from question just like stuart said um that also has a lot of layers to it right it it makes you feel like oh this person doesn't see me as a person they see me as an other like i'm not from here so i must be from somewhere else because i don't look a certain way i don't talk a certain way um how does that kind of sit in the mind because i know for a lot of people it can uh make you feel like perhaps you want to assimilate more and kind of push that side of it away and you know just answer the questions in a, in a sarcastic way for other people it kind of makes you a little bit of a fighter like you're like mm, i'm going to fight this person right now i'm going to fight all <laughs> of this ignorance right now like we're going at it i'd love to hear from you two like yancy elizabeth what is that experience like of having the question where are you really from but no no where are you really from <laughs> i think for me because i'm a daca recipient I'm very defensive and very proud of it yeah. just because of the creation and the inception of this country mm-hmm. and especially because I'm Mexican and in California I'm like yeah. girl if you if you know your history like <laughs> which most people don't well of course as we yeah. see a lot of people don't and I'm like no 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 like this this was me I just happened to be born on the other side of the line that you created you know the United States and the division of Mexico but right. anyway we digress <laughs> but I think for me I I feel like I always do get that question and I'll tell one story in particular, but for me, just being as a DACA recipient, and I came to the United States in the early 90s. Mm-hmm. So y'all can do the math. <laughs> no, it's been a while. And then um, this year, 2023, I would have, um, it's going to be 10 years that I've been under the DACA program. Mm-hmm. So it's been a whole decade. So yeah, but that's another story. <laughs> but um, I know uh, when I graduated high school, I had just um, gotten my DACA at that time. And I remember my first job, I was so excited, right? Because I've never had a real, you know, legal job, like no kind of job whatsoever, whether it be legally or under the table. My first job, it was at a uh, retirement home. Mm-hmm. Not the most exciting, but for me, it was like, oh my God, I was like, it's a job. It's a job. Yeah. I got a paycheck. I had my social security. I was, You're a big girl now. Yeah. Out of high school, I'm like, yes. <laughs> You're good to go. Yes. <laughs> Saving for a car. Oh, I was living life. And um, I remember uh, I did various different jobs. And then I remember one, um, one uh, thing that I did, I was, um, we did like dining style. So I was like a server and there was a white man, mm. a white man. He was like a little bit around my same age, like 
like in the late teens, early 20s. -hmm. And he said, like, what are you? Like, I can tell you're Latina, but you got something. Like, you don't look white. And I'm like, okay. And (laughs) I've always known because I'm very, very fair skinned and very light skinned. And I know there's a lot of privilege in that as well. And I just remember uh, also growing up, uh, my aunt and all of my family on my mom's side, they're very brown. And it's only my mom and I that were all really, really fair skinned. Not sure how that happened, but you know, <laughs> it happened. But um, we are very fair skinned. And then I remember growing up with my aunt, she would always tell me, Estás bien blanquita, you're mm-hmm. so white. And mm-hmm. she would specifically say, You're like a little porcelain doll. Mm-hmm. So just growing up around her, I she made me aware, not like society, but that came a little bit later. Mm-hmm. But just growing up with her, she instilled in me that the color the color like Mm -hmm. me being light that's a good thing right and I was like you know five years old like oh okay you know sure but Mm -hmm. you know then you kind of grow up a little bit and you start living in society and you start getting comments like yeah you're not white like I can see that you have something Woof, this is getting real damn colorism and anti-blackness is everywhere colonialism's message that the whiter the better continues to prove effective Interesting fact, according to the Pew Research Center, 1.2 million Latinos here in America identify as black, 1.5 million identify as American Indian, 12.6 million as white, 20 million as more than one race, and 26.2 million of Latinos identify as some other race, meaning that none of the categories provided sufficed. Interesting, right? Yep, that's not surprising, Don. Latinos are not a race. We are an ethnicity and culture with a beautiful array of races and skin tones. America has always miscategorized us and it's probably going to continue to do so for a while, unfortunately. But as we get back into the conversation, we began to discuss our thoughts on xenophobia and the phenomenon of not only white supremacist-based prejudice, but also immigrants who are anti-immigrant. It's a wild contradiction that we really wanted to explore and also bring up the recent backlash that George Lopez received for not wanting to support other Latino comedians in the industry. Yikes. Dale mi gente, let's listen in. Being a DACA recipient, sometimes you're kind of like forced Mm -hmm. to pick and choose between loving your home country because I love Mexico. I don't know anything about it. Mm -hmm. I've never been there. I have no memory of Mexico. So it's like, I love my country because it's my home and I'm very proud of my culture. But at the same time, I'm also kind of fighting to stay here. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like, you know, can I criticize the U.S.? Yes, this country like kind of sucks. (laughs) But also, you know, I'm kind of like fighting to stay here. And it's it's always this like push and pull. Like, can I love my country? Um, can like yes I can but at the same time like damn this country sucks but like at, at the same time like uh, yeah like please don't kick me out so it's this it's <laughs> right. such a crazy dynamic and that's kind of been my experience but yeah. yeah it's always that awkward question like yeah you look you're very light but you got something right like, mm-hmm. but you're not like okay. us yeah right and that can also go into like you know being Latinos, coming from Colombia, the Dominican Republic, Venezuela, everywhere, Mexico, we are so diverse within mm-hmm. our like own Latinidad yeah. that we all don't look the same. Right. Mm-hmm. And some of us are fair-skinned and have blue eyes right. and dark-skinned are Afro-Latinos and we're all beautiful. But again, it kind of goes to like what you were saying that 
we're all so different and we all don't look the same and we all have different dialects, different music, different dishes. And guess what? We're all hella diverse and we we put spice in everything. So we are good. <laughs> yeah. So that's yeah, that's been my experience. Yeah. You're white, but and Yancy, kind of yeah. hearing that perspective, mm-hmm. I see you as somebody who is very much brown, very much Latina. Indeed. What is that kind of experience for you on that spectrum? Yeah. Um I think your question's really interesting. And when you first posed it, I like really checked in with my body. And when you were like, you know, some people kind of respond with this kind of like fighter mm-hmm. response. And I think that that's really come to me. Like that response has kind of been embodied the older I've gotten. Right. Yeah. Um, and I so I really think it depends the way in which people pose that question. Right. Is it coming from a place of genuine curiosity Or is it coming from a place of othering me, Mm -hmm. right? And so I remember actually in one of the courses that I took in my master's program that, you know, I I actually introduced one of my professors to this idea of emotional labor, right? Mm -hmm. She actually did not know what that was because most of the class we were discussing kind of like racialized issues um, and she was a white woman, right? And I was one of the few brown women in the course, right? And I found myself really having to carry so much of these conversations and bringing up some of these topics. And I just remember how exhausting it was. And she had no idea, right? Mm. Um, and so I have definitely felt being objectified, yeah. right? And kind of being looked at as an object, not really as a person when people come to me in that way, you know? And I've also gotten that I'm like a little bit racially ambiguous, right? So my eyes are like hooded, right? And so they're like, wait, are you like Filipina? (laughs) They start to guess. Yeah, I actually even get that like within the Latino community, right? When people hear me speak Spanish, they're like, oh my God, wait, you're you're Latina. I'm like, (laughs) and and all of that. So um, I definitely think it's been a varied experience. Um, But I do, you know, I don't know. I mean, I I do want to approach questions from people with curiosity and an open heart, you know, but then it's also, you know, where do I draw that line? Mm -hmm. And when does it become inappropriate? And when does it become exhaustive to me as an individual to educate people around me? Usually when I get that question, it it comes with like that exotified exactly. tone. Precisely. Yeah. You know what I mean? And like, especially, ooh. yeah, like, oh, you're not from here. Like, yeah. oh, let me learn more about, you know, whatever the hell I, it is. It's like this I'm thinking. extraction almost. Yeah. Like energetically. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's almost like that same feeling that women tend to get when they're being sexualized. Absolutely. It's that same feeling of being exoticized. Like, oh, I need to just, I... I don't care about you as a person right now. I just need to find out where you're from so that I can label you in my mind as you are this type of person. And I had an experience at a hair salon where... I'm not getting into the hair salons. <laughs> Listen, so much has come out of this hair salon experience. Okay, it. so for those of you who don't know and don't follow me on social media, I recently got my hair colored and it was the first time in 10 years that I had done anything to my hair. The hairstylist... Uh, was asking me like, oh, so what do you do? What do you want your hair colored for? And I told her, you know, I'm a journalist. I'm on camera. You know, often I just want something that's, you know, pretty subtle but cute. Mm-hmm. And um, and I said something in Spanish. I think it just came out. Mm-hmm. I don't know what I said, but it came out. And she was like, oh, my gosh, you speak Spanish so well. Where are you from? And so we start going down the rabbit hole of mm-hmm. where I'm from and, 
you know, Puerto Rico, and inevitably it's the whole, oh, I love Puerto Rico. I've been to San Juan, and my friend is from here, and my this and that and the other. And it's usually always that vacation spot. Mm -hmm. So now, not only have you completely dismissed me as a person, but now you're just thinking about all the vacations you've taken to the country that I've had to move away from <laughs> because I can't have any opportunities there, but yet you can use it as your playground. So it's that exotificationness. Yeah. You know I what think, I mean? Yeah, I, I, I like I read both of the points. Mm -hmm. Like I was start with uh, a point like when I moved, like the reason why I like LA mm -hmm. is because I'm no longer the only black person. Yeah. Right. So I don't have to explain so much mm -hmm. about who I am because like there's so many other black people. Right. Uh, whereas in Minnesota, like some like you go to a place and it's only white people, and so you all you stand out, and you're like, hmm. okay, you have to explain all the conversation you're going to have that night right. with everybody mm -hmm. is going to be about where you're from, who you are, and so by the time you're emotionally drained, yeah, it's not like you're doing a lot of work, but just explaining right. who you are to people becomes so hard, yeah, and so you keep on like walking through, and so LA has been good because like okay, everyone. But then you, <laughs> when you start talking to people here, the only thing is like when they get your accent, like you speak English so well. Right. Mm. How, when did you start learning English? What, like, how do you speak? Like, you know, I'm like, I just learn English like other languages. Like, so like now you have to explain right. how you got to know how to speak English. Right. You Why know? you're so smart yes. that you know another yeah. language. It's like, you know, <laughs> if you just took some time. Right. Yeah. yeah. It's that ignorance that always yeah. seems to come through. So this kind of brings us into the general topic of xenophobia. Mm -hmm. So I want to read us um, something from a Crime Reads, which is um, a, a website. There was an article uh, on Crime Reads that said, even before the establishment of the United States, Colonial settlers, including those who later founded the nation, expressed fear over the immigration of non-Protestants from Europe. So it wasn't even immigrants from other countries. It was from their own country. <laughs> they colonized the United States and they start creating these different laws that say, well, if you're this type of European, you're not, you can't be a citizen. You can't be naturalized. So then there's this whole naturalization process happening. So xenophobia these days definitely has a much more racist undertone to it. I think we definitely are seeing how, you know, Ukrainians, for example, are treated as immigrants versus Haitians are treated as immigrants, right? So a, a lot of Haitians, um, I would say almost all of them were turned back, deported immediately, even whipped by horseback yeah. versus European immigrants, it's almost like, oh, you're safe. You're good. You can come. No questions asked, right? And why do we think that immigration in particular is such a sticking point for humans? Because it's not just Americans. It's not just Europeans who are anti-immigrant. A lot of times it's also immigrants themselves that are also anti-immigrant. And I learned that when I was living in Houston, Texas, <laughs> very close to the border, where I was meeting immigrants who were very anti-immigrant. Why do we think xenophobia is such an insidious little parasite? What is it about that? Um, well, if I just wanted to say something about our yeah. immigration laws. Our immigration laws are rooted in racism. 
So if you actually go back and look to the development of what is considered the now Immigration Nationality Act, our first immigration law was called the Chinese Exclusion Act. Yeah. That was basically developed to um, exclude Chinese nationals. How right? much more explicit can you exactly. get? Exactly. Like, tell us how you yeah. really feel. But right? I would even argue that our earliest immigration laws actually date back to the slave trade, mm. right? Because that was forced migration for the purposes of labor. And our immigration laws are really there if... When I when I teach class, it's like three buckets. <laughs> Sorry, um, it's supposedly for family unity, which takes forever and a day to do, right? right. But the easy way, easiest way to immigrate to the United States is actually for the promotion of capitalism, right? Mm -hmm. So it's getting certain 100%. employment visas, work visas. That's the you can even fast track them, and that's mostly accessible to who you know, mostly rich white people, mm -hmm. right? And then last is the bucket of humanitarian forms of relief, which are the hardest ones to get. Right. So I think it's really important for us to acknowledge as Americans, right, that our immigration laws are rooted in xenophobia. Right. Mm -hmm. American culture lends itself to that. It's so individualistic and it's really fend for yourselves that, for the example that you gave of Protestant groups wanting to exclude others, I think that's also just in something that's so innate as part of being Americans. Right. Versus mm -hmm. if we go to other countries and experience other cultures, the idea of really lending a helping hand, it's much more communal, right? Mm -hmm. And then the other thing that I wanted to say, because you brought up Ukrainians and girl, trust me, I can, I represent Ukrainians and I'm all about, like everyone should have a right to immigrate to the Absolutely. United States and flee the situations they're in. But it's evidence that racism is still a driving factor when it comes to our immigration mm -hmm. laws, right? Absolutely. We were able to treat Ukrainians in such a humane manner. We were able to parole them in. We were welcoming them at the border, mm -hmm. but the same could not be done for Central Americans, Haitians, so on that were fleeing as well. Sim similar or the same situations, yeah. right? right? And the other thing about Ukrainians that I think it's important to point out is that it's additionally, yes, they're white and privileged, but also that the majority of the Ukrainians that were actually able to flee were wealthy, right? Ukrainians who are currently experiencing poverty and do not have that connection to the United States of someone who can sponsor them continue to be in Ukraine, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So even then, it's 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 carved out for the elite. The Biden administration has now responded and saying, oh, we're going to do it for Venezuelans now, right? But that's because they've experienced backlash, right? Right. But they have also now basically ordered the Mexican government to detain Venezolanos right. right at much higher rates because they now know that there's an incentive to come to the United States. Yeah. Right? I think even Vice President Harris went to one of the countries and said, do not come here. Yeah. yeah. And it was such a slap in the face right after they just won largely on immigration policy. Mm -hmm. And then she goes to their country and says, don't come. Yeah. Like what a slap in the face. Yeah. Yeah. And then the other thing that I want to say, just based on my experience of working with, and I can speak mostly from as a Latina, you know, on the Latino experience, because I primarily do represent clients from Latin America. I think as Latinos and descendants of immigrants, we have to acknowledge the issues of colorism and racism that exist in our own communities, right? And that's why I think one of the reasons as Latinos, because we're not unified front, we have we all hate on each other, right? <laughs> and um, instead Girl of help, doing. Yeah, no, and then instead of helping each other, you know, yeah. we make things worse. And for example, I, I was in Tapachula one year working with migrants in transit, and I was working with a group of Cuban refugees who college educated were able to flee Cuba and telling me about how much more deserving they were than the other Central Americans in their shelter. 
right? Wow. So even issues within migrant communities themselves, mm-hmm. right? So I think these are conversations that we, we as current immigrants or generation, like first generation immigrants need to ha- like hold our communities responsible. Right? And accountable. Yeah. I mean, I remember high school in Houston and I remember it, there was obviously a very large Mexican population. And I remember that they, because um, I hung out with a lot of Dominicans, I remember they used to talk so much shit about us. They used to call us ghetto because of the way that we spoke Spanish. Uh, reggaeton was not popular back then, and uh, not when I went to high school. <laughs> now it's popular. But we used to listen to reggaeton and bachata and salsa, and they used to make fun of our music. And that always, like, baffled me because I'm like, we come from a culture where we speak the same language. We may not speak it in the same accent, but we speak the same language. We have a, the same colonizer. We have so much in common, and yet there's still buckets that we're fitting into, mm-hmm. yeah. right? And a lot of us, I think, get really baffled by that. In particular, I'm not first generation. I am not technically an immigrant because I was born in New York, but I was raised out of the United States. And so when I moved here, I had to learn English and all of that. So there's a term for that specific type of experience. It's very rare. But it always bothered me that there were even buckets within our bucket. (laughs) Like, how many buckets and hurdles do I have to go through? Because it's not just the Blanquitos now. It's not just the Gringos now that I have to fight. Now I have to fight you. Yeah. And you're like me. You look like me. Yeah. And I think that's part of what's so insidious about mm-hmm. colonization, mm-hmm. that it's not just a manifestation within our material realities, but it's a manifestation within our minds and our hearts. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And it's this idea, right, that I think has taken, obviously, since its inception, right, this notion of us being less than. And so it's created this internal desire, I believe, to survive. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think that so much of this comes from this like notion that the closer I am to whiteness, the closer I am to assimilation, the more successful I am going to be in surviving. And so mm-hmm. is my Say family. That. Yeah. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so it's coming from trauma. Yeah. From deep, profound, yeah. like mental and emotional wounds that travel with us yeah. through generations mm-hmm. right like being told not to tan too much mm-hmm. right when yeah. I go out because mm-hmm. I don't want to be too mm-hmm. yeah. right and it's coming from a place of love oh and I think in my family's mind at that time trying to protect me mm-hmm. right and so it's like I remember you know I hear a lot of stories my parents immigrated from El Salvador in the 80s right from fleeing the war they came here and they duked it out with, you know, a bunch of folks who were Mexican here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there was this deep divide in L.A. Mm-hmm. right between the Mexican and Salvadorian communities. Wow. You know, um, I ended up marrying someone who's Mexican. Mm. Right. And what I was rem- that like it was a thing. <laughs> right. And, yep. you know, it yeah. was a thing. It was a conversation that I didn't even think about. Right. Mm -hmm. Really. But then, you know, really um, through conversations with my father and my family. Right. Um, it was a little controversial, right? You know what I mean? I mean, but I didn't care, yeah, right? Because I don't want to feed into that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's a really profound question, right? About why it's so, um, why it's so prevalent um, a- across the world and also like within our, our home country. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Absolutely, yeah. I think Angus Dickens, like a professor in economics has this, this book called The Greatest Cap. Mm. And he talks about this same issue about 
when like people, like when we start off, we want to be good and we want to do very good for ourselves and we're working hard to be better people. We have good intentions. Yes, we have good mm -hmm. intentions. But then after some time, after working and getting some level of success and, you know, success means coming to the U.S. or success meaning you get a house or something right. like that, you know. Mm -hmm. And then you feel, you start getting threatened that, okay, when somebody else comes or when new immigrants come into like this other place, they're going to take away my job or they're going to take away this small success that I've been able to achieve. Right. So the more people come in, like on across the borders, the more that I am not going to be able to achieve what I want. Mm -hmm. And so then you start becoming defensive. And competitive. Uh, yes. And mm -hmm. you are feeling and that, violent. okay, yes. yeah. Yeah. How am I going to survive? So it's like our nature, like survival for the fetus. So mm. we're like, okay, I have to fight them. I have to tell them like they shouldn't be coming so that they don't take away my job or they don't take away my small thing that I've been able to achieve mm -hmm. in this town. Absolutely. Yeah. Currently, as we are filming this episode, there's so much conversation around the George Lopez clip. That came out because it's so in line what you just said, Stuart. So George decided to go get on a podcast and it was a roundtable of comedians and they're talking about the career. And all of a sudden, somebody brings up another young comedian's name. Um, I'm forgetting his name right now, but I do follow him on social media. Ralph so, Barbosa. Hey. <laughs> there you go. What is it? Ralph Barbosa. Yes, yeah. Ralph. And, um, and so this com young comedian's name is brought up. And George says, well, maybe I haven't been as helpful as a comedian as I could have been, but you really just have to be out here looking out for yourself. You just got to focus on yourself, focus on your own success. And the person who brought up Ralph was like, well, actually, I think it's it's better to not just think about yourself, but also the people who are up and coming and in particular Latinos who are already not really that much represented in media. And in the comedy scene, we got to lift each other up. And literally, George, with a straight face, said, I don't think that's right. Mm -hmm. And he is getting flamed on social media right now. I also want to look out for others. And, and I also want to make the path I don't easier. think that's the right, you know, I don't think that's the right, I don't think that's the right thing. I disagree. I mean, you look at yeah, Richard Pryor, who, who championed Eddie Murphy, who... You know, when Eddie Murphy walks into... I don't a think he did. He did. And, and when Eddie Murphy walks into ABC and says, hey, that's fucking earthquake. I think he's fucking great. He needs an opportunity. I don't see anything wrong with that. I, I think that that's a good look. And I think that it helps. Why are you trying to help with some dude that's trying to make it? Like, you're, you, you need to make it. I made it. Life's good. I have met so many people that think just like that who could care less about giving you an, upper, uh, an opportunity who might have more financial success or might have more experience than you, who could care less about bringing you up with them. Mm -hmm. Somebody had mentioned this crab in a barrel mentality. And I think to myself, it's much older than that. And it's much more insidious than that. You mentioned colonialism earlier. It's definitely a colonial mentality because just as you said, Stuart, with that book that you mentioned, it's not just about oh, I just got to look out for me, myself alone. It's not just individualism, which also comes out of colonialism. It's that you are my enemy because you come from where I come from. You look like I do. 
And there can only be one of us. Mm -hmm. Only one of us can be successful in this situation Mm -hmm. because I have fought so hard to get the opportunities that I've gotten. I probably stabbed a lot of people in the back to get here and you're not about to compete with me. Mm -hmm. And that is that whiteness mentality, Mm -hmm. that white supremacist mentality that says you just look out for your own profits, look out for your own success and fuck everybody else. And that happens so much in Latino communities, but I'm sure it happens in so many other ethnic ethnic communities where the moment you are the minority in a country, the competitive nature just comes out. It comes out and you don't know who you can trust. So not only can I not trust the gringo who is exotifying me, but now I can't even trust the people in my own community. And that sucks. That really, really sucks. So that I found to be such a great example of how even your own people can turn against you. So much so that it's like a part of their morality. He literally said, I don't think it's right to help other people. And I think it's generational Mm -hmm. too, right? Because if you look at George, right, and the time period in which he came up, I, I just, I think it's, and it's so different. And part of why I was interested in coming here today is because I think what you're doing is so beautiful. Yeah. You know, bringing us all together and, and, and really like through your actions, fighting that mentality. My generation, we're in a different place now, right? Where we can really look at each other and I think look at how we can heal that. Yeah. How do like the question now I think becomes like, how do we move forward? Exactly. Yeah. How do we move forward as a community? Yeah. I think you were, you, when you were mentioning about like generation and you explaining the whole George Lopez situation, it really reminded me, I don't know if you guys have this experience, mm-hmm. but you know, when like la, the tias come together mm-hmm. and then they start talking about their kids. Yeah. It's like, how's sure your do. daughter? <laughs> oh, well, my daughter's child. This. Yeah. I the yeah. daughter. Who got married first. Who yes. had kids first. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like, oh yeah, my daughter's great. She just got a new job. It's like, well, mine just graduated from Harvard and it's like <laughs> they're trying to like one up each other yeah, and yeah. maybe it also comes from that but I think maybe our generation I do not agree mm-hmm. at all with George Lopez mm-hmm. because yes there are a lot of people whether it's in entertainment or holding executive positions right being a board member being a homeowner there's so many different avenues where Latinos we are just not in those spaces mm-hmm. and me I just don't agree with that I think there's space for everyone. I, I have like two, like, I don't know how you used to say it, but like one, we have to create our own spaces. We have to, you know, like a seat at the table. Mm-hmm. You need to bring your own lawn chair because white people mm-hmm. are not opening that chair for we us to sit down. Tables. Yeah, <laughs> we create our own tables. We bring our own chairs. We create it ourselves. But I'm a really strong and firm believer that you bring your own chair, you create your own table, but you bring another chair for the next person behind you Mm -hmm. because we are just not in those spaces. And maybe it is a generational thing, but I think it's up to us to kind of just break those and be like, no, 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 no. Mm -hmm. There is room for all of us, whether you want to be this or an actor, producer, lawyer, everything, Mm -hmm. because we are just not in those spaces, period. So we need to fight our way against like mainly white people Mm -hmm. to be in those spaces but you know help each other out because yeah there are people who you know in the industry where they might stab you in the back and that's kind of like maybe the way things are but I just don't do that and I also believe in karma so you know if you're gonna do something bad it's gonna come back to you yeah yeah social media is not nice to him right now yeah Yeah. I was just gonna say like something I've been thinking about and like I talk about in my podcast is like uh, is it 
there is there something that comes up when you're told you are the man, minority like you're the you're the underdog or you're this like you the small people mm. so does that bring out that sort of competitive nature in you like knowing that okay now i am the underdog or i'm the small person here so that means that i have to fight the other person so that we can only have one person right so does it is it that like people telling you oh you're this you're the small people now you should fight so it's like mm-hmm. when you bring like lions together it's only one that has to stand so right. i am starting to think about it more like, is it helping us telling us like we are the we are the minority oh is it that it's just us and it's mm-hmm. like there's nothing we could do about uh, such a phenomena yeah yeah i think i i love what you said about that yancy about you know the next generation kind of breaking that curse because I do think it is a curse I love that you just said that yeah that's a beautiful way to phrase it yeah it's an absolute curse where you're just allowing white supremacy to continue through you (laughs) yeah like we don't need white folks anymore to perpetuate white supremacy we have ourselves how do we die back (laughs) this conversation meant so much to me y'all and we really hope that you enjoyed it too That's it for us today, but that's just part one of the conversation. So be sure to subscribe to our podcast wherever you are listening from so that you don't miss part two of this topic on immigration or really any of our episodes this month. Yes, and I thoroughly enjoyed the conversation. Don't forget to follow us on social media at The Stranger Fruit and let us know what you thought of today's conversation. We love hearing from you. Many people don't know that the podcast algorithm favors those with a high amount of reviews. So be sure to let us know what you think of today's episode by leaving a five-star review and get us in good favor with the algorithm God. Until next time, peace. Peace.